0: Hello everyone and welcome to the November 2nd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeals sustained a Gardena Police Department service officer's fraud conviction. Here's what happened in the case of People versus Angelica Reynoso. Angelica Reynoso was a service officer for the Gardena Police Department and she worked at the city jail. On February 20, 2016, an inmate who had scabies was transferred to another jail. Another service officer packaged the inmate's property, but Reynoso may have touched the inmate's shoes. That same day, Reynoso purchased over 1,000 square feet of flooring from lumber liquidators, and over the next few months purchased additional flooring. Three days after the transfer of the scabies inmate, Reynoso reported that she had a rash and believed it to be scabies due to the inmate exposure. Reynoso received treatment that day from a medical clinic. Seventeen days after the transfer, Reynoso then informed her employer that she believed that scabies had infected her children and her residents. The employer sent a professional cleaning crew to her residence, and the cleaners found an infestation of bedbugs, but not scabies. The crew steam-cleaned the carpet, but did not advise Reynoso to replace the carpet with new flooring. Later, Reynoso stated that her physician advised her to replace her flooring and sent $8,600 worth of flooring invoices to her employer asking for reimbursement under the workers' compensation claim. When asked to provide the physician's note, Reynoso changed her story and then claimed that the replacement recommendation came from the cleaning crew who cleaned her residence. A jury convicted Reynoso of workers' compensation insurance fraud and insurance fraud, and the Court of Appeals sustained the conviction in the unpublished case. The issue on appeal was the admissibility of a recorded interview taken by investigator Michael Downs at the police department. Downs died before the criminal trial, and the recording was admitted into evidence without his authentication. The court noted that recordings are writings as defined by the evidence code. To be admissible, a writing must be relevant and authenticated. The code defines authentication as the introduction of evidence sufficient to sustain a finding that it is the writing that the proponent of the evidence claims it is. The fact conflicting inferences can be drawn regarding authenticity goes to the document's weight as evidence, not its admissibility. The trial court acted within its discretion by deciding that the prosecutor established a prima facie showing of authenticity for the Downs recording. The parties previously had stipulated that the voices on the recording were Downs and Reynoso. The parties also agreed that their respective transcripts of the recording had no material differences. At the beginning and end of the recording, Downs announced the time. Thus, from this information, the court could measure the duration of the interview and decide that it was complete. And now our crime report a chiropractor, and a state compensation insurance fund claims adjuster have been charged with conspiring to process false insurance claims for payments amounting to more than $1.6 million. 65-year-old Agap Sarafian, the claims adjuster of Loughran Senna, and 65-year-old Shahi Kavork Hopgian, the chiropractor of Granada Hills, each face one felony count of insurance fraud. The chiropractor's office was located at 22030 Clarendon Street in Woodland Hills. Prosecutors said that the alleged insurance fraud occurred between 2007 and November 25 of 2019. The pair is accused of defrauding the state fund by setting up fake workers' compensation lien settlements to receive undeserved insurance payouts. If convicted as charged, the defendants each face a maximum sentence of five years in county jail. The case remains under investigation by the California Department of Insurance Fraud Division. 75-year-old Egisto Salerno, M.D., an internal medicine physician practicing in San Diego, was sentenced to 18 months in prison for causing the illegal distribution of opioid medications. He stipulated to surrender his California medical license on May 25, 2018 to resolve disciplinary actions then pending against him for gross negligence. Salerno, whose medical practice was located at 5532 El Cajon Boulevard, pleaded guilty in January, admitting that he signed prescriptions for more than 78,000 pills that lacked a legitimate medical purpose and were outside the usual course of professional medical practice. Salerno also admitted that an undercover federal agent who visited his office on six occasions received six hydrocodone prescriptions. On a date when the undercover agent did not visit Salerno's office and the doctor did not see him, Salerno acknowledged that a prescription was improperly issued by him in the name used by the undercover agent. After the prescription was issued, he signed a progress note in the patient chart for the purported visit that did not occur. The prescription was then picked up by another as part of a larger scheme to divert these pills. That scheme involved two medical assistants who falsified medical records and sold prescriptions that Salerno had pre-signed to another co-defendant. In fact, as Salerno acknowledged, many of those in whose names these prescriptions were written were deceased or jailed at the time the prescriptions were issued. The pills were in turn diverted to the capper or patient recruiter who also arranged to bring homeless and other individuals to Salerno's office and paid them to secure those prescriptions. Others assisted the patient recruiter by transporting the purported patients to his office and then to pharmacies to pick up the pills. In turn, the pills were sold in San Diego and delivered to a pharmacy in Mexico for cash. Seven other defendants have been convicted in this case, including Salerno's two medical assistants and the lead patient recruiter. Nimesh Sa, owner of Blue Star Learning, a technical training school in San Diego, was sentenced to 45 months in custody as a result of a multi-year scheme that defrauded the Department of Veterans Affairs out of almost $30 million in veteran education benefits. Saw was ordered to forfeit about $3 million and to pay the VA more than $29 million in restitution. His wife, Ninhi Sa, who was the vice president and director of education at the school, was sentenced to two years of probation as a result of lying to investigators. Saha took extraordinary efforts to deceive regulators from the Department of Veterans Affairs to ensure the school continued to receive VA funds. Saha provided the VA with false documents, invented fake students, and created fake student files, and provided spreadsheets with false employment information and fraudulent contact information for purported graduates of the school. And they made-up employers. Eligible schools must be accredited yearly as part of the process must show that graduates are successfully finding work in their field. To comply, Saha created fictional graduates and hired people overseas to pose as satisfied alumni with fake emails and phone numbers. He purchased cellular telephones so that he and his employees could field VA regulator calls to purported employers of his school graduates. And he hired individuals overseas to pretend to be satisfied Blue Star Learning students in response to VA regulator later emails. In reality, the vast majority of actual graduates of the program were working in jobs not related to the training. Saha's so scheme appears to be one of the largest post 9 11 GI Bill fraud cases that has been prosecuted around the country. The VA issued over $11 million in tuition payments to Blue Star Learning and over $18 million in housing allowances and stipends. In total, as a result of Saha's fraud, the VA lost more than $29 million. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has issued a notice of public hearing for the amendment of the medical legal fee schedule. The proposed amendments to the medical legal fee schedule include a 25% increase in the multiplier used for setting fees for evaluations, flat fees for comprehensive follow-up and supplemental medical legal evaluations, a single rate for review of medical records based upon the amount of pages reviewed, a meet and confer requirement for records sent to the physician, elimination of complexity factors from the medical legal fee schedule, an increased modifier for reports dealing with psychiatric issues, and an increase in the hourly fee for medical legal testimony. The proposed fee schedule was formulated after multiple stakeholder meetings where carriers, employers, physicians, and medical management companies were able to provide input. In addition, the proposed regulations were revised after review of the results of a 15-day comment period from a prior forum posting of the proposed regulations. This new hearing will be held online by way of the Zoom platform, on Monday, December 14, 2020, at 10 o'clock a.m. Members of the public may attend the public meeting using the URL on the DWC website. The national battle is heating up over the future of the gig economy in our nation. On September 22, 2020, the U.S. Department of Labor announced a proposed rule addressing how to determine whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor under the Fair Labor Standards Act. In this proposed rulemaking, the department proposes to adopt an economic reality test to determine a worker's status as an FLSA employee or independent contractor. The test considers whether a worker is in business for themselves thus an independent contractor, or is economically dependent on a putative employer for work, thus an employee. The rule will identify and explain two core factors, specifically the nature and degree of the worker's control over the work, and the worker's opportunity for profit or loss based on initiative or investment. These factors help determine if a worker is economically dependent on someone else's business or is in business for themselves. And it will identify three other factors that may serve as additional guideposts in the analysis, including the amount of skill required for the work, the degree of permanence of the working relationship between the worker and the potential employer, and whether the work is part of an integrated unit of production. This proposed rule has triggered a heated battle over the requirements for being an independent contractor. Weighing in on the battle is the California Attorney General, as well as what he says is a coalition of 24 attorneys general, as well as local authorities in many U.S. cities. The coalition joined in writing a comment letter that opposed the Department of Labor position on this new rule. They say that the proposal upends the test currently used under the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act that determines whether workers are entitled to critical employee protections, such as paid sick leave, overtime, and unemployment insurance. In the comment letter, the coalition urges the Trump administration to withdraw what they call the unlawful proposal. The Workers' Compensation Appeals Board issued two new en banc decisions reinstating a few of the rules of practice and procedure that had been suspended earlier this year as a result of limitations caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. The relevant section of the first opinion provided that the Appeals Board rescinds its suspension of WCAB Rules 10755 Five six and one zero eight 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 effective immediately. These three rules pertain to sanctions available to the work comp judge for resolving a failure to appear a- at a scheduled hearing. The second case provided that the appeals board rescinded its suspension of WCAB rules one zero six two zero and one zero six seven zero B three. As of December 1, 2020, these two rules would become effective again with respect to all workers' compensation matters heard after December 1. These two rules pertain to requirements for filing and service of proposed exhibits 20 days prior to trial and the sanctions and consequences for failing to do so. Other than these five rules, all other emergency orders of prior unbanked decisions remain in effect. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services added 11 codes to the list of telehealth services payable under the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. As a result, the Division of Workers' Compensation has posted an order dated October 20, adjusting the physician and non-physician practitioner services section of the official medical fee schedule to conform to Medicare fee schedule changes. The DWC has adopted the updated telehealth list, which includes all 11 of the new codes, which are effective for services rendered on or after October 14, 2020. The order adopting the updated Physician and Not Physician Practitioner Fee Schedule can be found on the DWC Fee Schedule web page. And in medical news, doctors are wondering if a new device, Agili-C, is the future of knee joint repair. Agili-C is a proprietary implant for the treatment of cartilage lesions in arthritic and non-arthritic joints. Its developer, Cartiheal, announced that the FDA has granted breakthrough device designation for the new Agility c implant. FDA's Breakthrough Device Program is reserved for certain medical devices that provide for more effective treatment or diagnosis of life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating diseases or conditions. This program is intended to help patients receive more timely access to these medical devices by expediting their development, assessment, and review by the FDA. Cartilage, the flexible soft tissue that cushions joints, especially in the knee, cannot self-heal once damaged. That's because it lacks blood vessels. The Agile C surgical implant is a biological scaffold onto which the body's own stem cells grow and regenerate the damaged bone and cartilage naturally. Gradually, over 6 to 12 months, the scaffold is replaced with a top layer of hyaline cartilage and a bottom layer of bone identical to the body's own tissues in a normal joint. The cartilage jelly c implant is placed where the natural cartilage has degenerated and is immediately infiltrated with blood, starting a biological chain reaction. The tissue created by this little implant becomes genetically identical to the body's own tissue. Cartiheal is a privately held medical device company headquartered in Israel and New Jersey. It develops proprietary implants for the treatment of cartilage and osteochondral defects in traumatic and osteoarthritic joints. Public health experts are hoping one or several vaccines for COVID-19 will be ready by 2021. Close to 200 vaccines for the disease are under study, and several candidates have moved, moved to phase three human studies. To help speed up development and fund the trials, the U.S. has set up Operation Warp Speed, a partnership with the Department of Health and Human Services, the FDA, and other federal agencies. Its goal is to deliver 300 million doses of a safe, effective vaccine by January 2021. AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, Novavax, Pfizer, and Sanofi GSK are included in the program. The British pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca just reported its potential COVID-19 vaccine has produced a similar immune response in older and younger adults. AstraZeneca, which is developing its potential COVID-19 vaccine in collaboration with the University of Oxford, said adverse responses to the vaccine among the elderly were also found to be lower. The announcement is likely to boost hopes of a COVID vaccine being developed before the end of the year. Pfizer, one of the front runners in the quest for a COVID-19 vaccine, has more than one vaccine candidate being developed together with the German company BioNTech. It said its candidate vaccine looks safe and the company expects to have data soon on how well it protects people against the coronavirus. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Department of Defense announced a $1.95 billion agreement with Pfizer to produce 100 million doses of the vaccine. The deal also allows the U.S. government to acquire an additional 500 million doses. The start of Moderna's Phase three trial of its vaccine was announced just last August. It will involve 30,000 adults at 89 clinical research sites around the country. It was the first Phase three trial begun under Operation Warp Speed. Novavax, a biotechnology company based in Gaithsburg, Maryland, announced the launch of its Phase 3 trial in the United Kingdom on September 24. This will evaluate the vaccine in up to 10,000 people, both with and without underlying conditions. Up to 400 participants in that study will also be vaccinated against the seasonal flu as part of a sub-study that will help determine whether it's safe to give patients both vaccines at the same time. On September 23rd, Johnson & Johnson announced the launch of a phase three trial to evaluate the safety of its vaccine and how well it works using up to 60,000 adults from a variety of countries. The trial will include significant representation from older populations and those with underlying conditions that make them more susceptible to COVID-19. On October 12, Johnson & Johnson announced that it has paused its trials for an independent safety review due to an unexplained illness in a participant. So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts, and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, Minukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news we